0: Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing there drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man, wearing nothing but a linen garment, was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garments behind.
1: Thank you Thank you ever so much. I love that reading my goodness. I Know I know my job is under threat Which is not a bad thing I would say so today we are looking at our next um, episode you could say in our road to the resurrection we're approaching Easter. This is part four. Thank you, Stefan, for speaking last week. Stefan and Leslie are not here because they both got COVID. No. At least that's their excuse. Maybe they got the clocks wrong and they're really lying in bed. I, I, I'm actually not sure I believe them. I, I don't know, Stefan and Are you watching online? Are you really, Is it true? Is it really COVID? I, uh, I'm not so sure. Um, but thank you, Stefan, for speaking last week on, on Jesus as being vulnerable and, and not a victim, but, but vulnerable in a really healthy way. And as you can see, as we approach Easter and the cross and all that, um, most of these lessons, the last few weeks and today to there's not really a, a room, room for a lot of laughs um, in Gethsemane and on the cross and so on. So I can't make you an excuse for that. That's the way it is. But I do think there's a tremendous amount that is valuable we're going to be learning over the next few weeks. Today, we're talking about being under trial from this passage and the parts that follow immediately from it in Mark 14. Have you, I'm not going to ask you to put your hand up, but have you ever been under trial? Uh, maybe in a magistrate's court, maybe in a criminal court. I mean, again, I'm not asking for people to confess all your sins, but just, you know, you can answer that for yourself. Or maybe if you haven't been before some kind of official magistrate, uh, my father used to be a magistrate. He brought out some very interesting stories of uh, excuses people made for their various misdemeanors. But Maybe you haven't been in that situation But perhaps you've been under some kind of trial a trial at work a trial peer probationary period and you have to keep reporting on how You're doing or maybe you've even been Investigated at work and you know, you've had to you've had to give a report of your work because people have been suspicious You've been stealing paperclips or something. Perhaps you've had a trial uh, just in life, you know that you are you felt the trials of life or maybe some of us, with our parents, we felt like they were had us under trial all the time growing up. I'm looking at some of the teenagers here. Perhaps um, you feel like you're under trial, not at home, having to behave, do certain things, not do other things. It's tough being a teenager, but bear in mind, your your parents went through this as well. Uh, we, we, get, we have that sense of being under trial a lot in life, and indeed, Jesus Jesus was under trial, but in a much more profound way. How did he respond? What can we learn from it? What can we gain from that? So three things we're gonna look at today, three scenes. And the first is here in the garden, uh, where we left off with Stephen last time. In Mark 14, Jesus has been uh, praying in Gethsemane, getting himself ready, I suppose, for what's about to come uh, for the cup that he's going to need to uh, accept. And then in that garden, Judas turns up with a crowd and uh, kisses him. He is arrested, uh, the sword is brought out, and the ear uh, of the servant of the high priest is cut off. It sounds rather bloodthirsty, doesn't it? And uh, Jesus asks them whether he's leaving rebellion. I've been around, I've been teaching. You, you know, you could have talked to me anytime you like. But they all run away, including this mysterious young man who leaves behind his one little garment and, and runs away. Naked as the day he was born, my goodness. What a st- I get what strange things here, right? Let's tease out a few bits before we go on to the next uh, part here. Um, we are in this scene, we're in the dark. Now, you know what dark, have you been in real dark? Not the dark at, you know, walking around Watford or something. I mean, it's not really dark, but dark, dark, where you can't see the hand in front of your face. Some of you in Africa, I would think probably more so in places like that where you don't have so much street lights and stuff, right? That real dark, that's what it was like for Jesus in the garden. Maybe was the odd torch, a blazing torch, but dark, dangerous. Mums, mums, how do you feel when your young children are out at night in the dark on their own? Very uncomfortable feeling, isn't it? You want them to be in the light, in the safety. I'm sure Mary, Jesus' mother, must have been feeling this as Jesus is out in the dark. And, uh, and he has a cosmopolitan collection of people come to arrest him. We've got a crowd... Uh, from the chief priests, <coughs> the teachers of the Lord, the elders, people who ordinarily wouldn't necessarily get on and didn't share all the same views. But it's funny that Jesus, as much as he unifies his followers, <coughs> seems to unify his enemies. Uh, he has a unifying effect on everybody in some way or other. Um, <laughs> maybe it's a bit like all the European countries at the moment who don't really get on, but, but are working together to help Ukraine. right? It's funny how sometimes things bring us together. Anyway, um, you might think it a bit odd. And maybe not uh, to be trusted that all these spiritual holy people come out with a with swords and clubs. This is a mob. It's a religious mob organized by the religious leaders. Is that credible? Well, let me tell you about some uh, writing by a chap called Flavius Josephus. Josephus was a first century historian who was Jewish and was a general and fought against the Romans and then realized when he was losing and the Jews were going to lose, he switched sides and joined the Romans. And he then became a favourite of the emperor of the day and wrote history for the Romans. So this is somebody from a Jewish perspective who became a Roman sympathiser and wrote history and he wrote about Jesus and about his followers and wrote about these times. He's writing a little bit after the time of Jesus, but still in the first century. So he wrote this, for example, such was the shamelessness and effrontery which possessed the ruling priests that they actually were so brazen as to send slaves to the threshing floors to receive the tithes that were due the priests, with the result that the poorer priests starved to death. So this is the ruling priests starving the younger priests, the junior priests, to death so that they could get the money. This is the kind of a, a behavior that was going on in the first century amongst the ruling priestly uh, clans. Or well, secondly, from his other, uh, also from his book, The Antiquities, Ananias, who's mentioned in the scriptures, Ananias had servants who were utter rascals. Now, there's a word we need to bring that word back.
0: <laughs>
1: rascals. He had servants who were utter rascals, and who, combining operations with the most reckless men, would go to the threshing floors, and take by force the tithes of the priests. Nor did they refrain from beating those who refused to give. The ruling priests were guilty of the same practices. As his slaves, and no one could stop them. So this is the brutality of the day, and explains why this is completely credible. What's going on in Gethsemane, right here? Really sad, but but a reality. Judas then betrays Jesus with a kiss. How would it, I mean, it feels bad to be betrayed by anybody, but what about your bestie? Being betrayed by your bestie. I mean, Judas was one of his close uh, associates here and been with him for three years. How would that feel? I mean, I'm not going to ask you to volunteer it, but if you've ever been betrayed by someone you would consider to be a trusted, a close friend, if you lived long enough, it's happened to you. If it hasn't, I'm, I'm glad for you, but it's probably coming. I, I, but I hope not. I hope not. But what an awful situation to be in. Normally, in this situation, uh, the rabbi would kiss his followers, and then they would kiss back. You know, the cheek sort of thing. But here, Judas breaks protocol by kissing Jesus to indicate who he is. He has to give that signal and he warns them to take him away under guard, as if Jesus is going to try and run away. Why does he want Jesus under guard? Because Judas wants his money and he wants to make sure Jesus doesn't get away. The scriptures are fulfilled and Jesus is at peace. He's not struggling, he's not fighting, he's not trying to get away. He's at peace because he knows the will of the Father. I would suggest that what Stefan talked about last week from the time in Gethsemane, that is what was critical him to be able to handle this situation he needed that time in gethsemane to prepare him for the fulfillment of scripture in his life be it ever so injurious to him personally he's at peace when all around him are perturbed i find jesus very inspiring in this way i get perturbed very easily Um, bad news an unexpected bill someone frowning at me from across the road these things bother me I get perturbed very. My peace is disturbed very easily. But Jesus is in this garden with crowd with a crowd with swords and clubs. He knows what's coming. One of his own followers, we know from one of the other gospels, it's Peter who pulls out the sword and cuts off the ear of Malchus. We know the name from one of the other gospels, which was not. It's not Peter being incompetent. It's been portrayed this sometimes in way in sermons, like, oh look, he couldn't even cut. He couldn't even really injure someone properly. Probably properly, he only managed to cut off the ear. But actually, it was a very serious uh, injury, and for a priest, who this would have been, would have disbarred him from his profession as a priest because he couldn't have an injury like that. So that's a side point. But Jesus has that that genuine. Is, uh, he has that genuine serenity. He surrendered to God, and I'd suggest this is one of the reasons why we have our own times of quiet with God. We need those quiet moments with God to prepare us for the days to come, even that day, when our peace will be disturbed. Jesus sets us a tremendous example here. And even though he sets such a wonderful example, all of his friends run away. They flee, they they deserted him and fled. And in fact, in the Greek, I'll just give you a little bit of one small bit of Greek, come back. Um, that's the Greek for verse 50. And literally, if you look at the word order, it says, Then deserted him fled everyone. And bear in mind, you know, the Gospels would have been written to be read out. And they'd have been read. And most people wouldn't, of course, have their own copy. But the early church would have had it read. And I can imagine the person reading this slowing down as he gets to the end of the sentence and saying, they deserted him. They deserted him. They fled with a pause. Everyone. Everyone left. If you, and me, we'd been there, we'd have all run away. Guarantee it. I would. So would you. Let's not kid ourselves. Like, we're too holy. We're too, you know, we're strong. We know, we know Jesus, you know, we we're. you know, we could handle it. No. If his apostles couldn't handle it, you and I couldn't handle it. There are times when things get a bit much. Jesus knows how it feels to be alone with only God for his strength. You and I know times in life when we feel alone and we have only God for our strength. So that's our first scene. The next scene takes us to verse 53. Let's have a look there. From the garden, we move to the home of the high priest. And a lot of people come together, the elders, the teachers of the law. Peter follows at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. He's, he sits there with the guards, warms himself at the fire. Chief priest, whole Sanhedrin, looking for evidence so they can put him to death. They've decided what they want to do, whatever the evidence is. They're just trying to find the evidence. They testify falsely against him. Statements don't agree. Some stand up and give the false testimony, saying, I heard him say he's going to destroy the temple, the human hand, three days, build another. Even then, they don't agree. High priest stands up and said, aren't you going to answer? What is this testimony? Jesus remained silent, gave no answer. Again, he asks him, are you the Messiah, the son of the Blessed One? I am. I am, said Jesus. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tears his robes, sign of great disgrace and disturbance. Why do we need any more witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. And then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. Guards took him and beat him. This is the first of two trials. Many people look at this and say, you've got the trial of Jesus and shortly we've got the trial of Peter, which we're going to come to in just a moment. It's a sandwich. Again, like you may remember, I've talked about this Mark and sandwich idea where Mark has um, one story bracketing another story. And here we have Peter by the fire and later we're going to see Peter by the fire and we've got this bit about Jesus in between. Mums mums know how it feels. What does it feel like when your children are falsely accused of something? Maybe some teacher at school. Teachers are wonderful, by the way. I think all of you teachers are wonderful. I'm just going to put that caveat there because all of you teachers, especially the ones here, perhaps especially the ones here, and of course none of this would never apply to you. But occasionally, a teacher at school—not one here—a teacher at school sometimes <laughs> has been known, on occasion, somewhere, to uh, to sometimes take it against a child. And, and load stuff on a child and accuse them of things, and then the parents, and mum hears about it, and a uh, mama bear comes out and wants to go up to that school, put that teacher right, right? Imagine Mary learning what's going on, what's going on here with her son. Tough. So what kind of trial do we have here? Well, we have an illegal trial by Jewish law. They're doing it all wrong. Um, there are a lot of people there the Sanhedrin is usually about 71 men plus all the others There's a big crowd crowding around Jesus here and they get false testimony They're actually trying to get false testimony uh, into the trial, which obviously is not according to Jewish law and uh, He's been accused by the high priest and it's interesting that he stays silent to begin with doesn't he Jesus um, He asks him about the testimonies Jesus remained silent which confuses everybody why does Jesus remain silent here? He could defend himself. He could, put, he could put the wrongs right. Isn't he about putting wrongs right? And these people are saying false things. Couldn't he say, that's not true. This is the truth. And why does he not do that? He doesn't do it because it's not important right now. He's on his way to the cross. And he's not there to defend himself. I don't match about you, but I find it very difficult not to defend myself when I think someone has got something wrong about me. You said this, and I'm like, mm, no, I didn't say that. You meant that. or oh, that's even worse, isn't it? But, no, it's much worse when people tell you what your motives are. That's actually a lot worse. Like, I know what you really meant. You do? Sometimes, it's interesting, you know things I don't know. Okay, I wasn't aware that I thought that or felt that. It's very interesting. And I want to defend myself. And this happens a lot in life, and it happens, frankly, quite a lot in um, in families, um, particularly between husbands and wives. And, uh, well, so I've heard, because it never happened uh, between us. But um, And we want to do it, but Jesus, he is so surrendered to God. It doesn't matter if what people say about me is right or wrong. What matters is that I do what is right by you, God. That's what matters. And it's, it's a good lesson for us. This is a point for another time, really. But there are times to hold our peace, even when we could correct something. It may not be helpful or necessary to correct. That's something for us to consider. But that's not really the point of the passage here. Uh, but when he's asked about whether he's the Messiah, then he does speak up. Because that's about his identity. And so he's teaching his behavior, what he said, what he didn't say, about other things. At this point, doesn't matter. But what really does matter is who he is. Are you the Messiah? I am. And you know what? Son of man, referring to himself, looking at Daniel chapter 7, if you want to check that out, it will come, and you'll see him coming at the right hand of the mighty one, the clouds of heaven. Perhaps he's talking there about AD 70, looking back at Mark 13, you can look that up another time. He might be talking about that kind of judgment, that kind of coming of God bringing judgment on the Israelites as they had rejected the Messiah and the Romans conquered Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. Maybe that's what he's talking about. Let me know what your theories are later. But that's something is going on here. They're sitting in judgment on him when he's going to sit in judgment on them because the Messiah, according to Psalm 110, is going to sit in judgment on the people of Israel. There's a a flip going on here. The irony is intense. This high priest commits blasphemy in the very act of condemning our great high priest for having committed blasphemy. What a paradox. What a switch. And then they spit on him and hit him. I don't know if you've ever been spat on. It's very unpleasant. It happened to me, I think, two different occasions in my life. Once at school and once another time. And uh, it's very strange how something so non, say non-physical, I non I don't mean non-physical, but non, non-violent, how that seems to be worse than physical violence in some ways. I can't explain it. It's why I think sports people get really upset when they get spat on. You know, it's funny you can you can injure someone in quite a bad tackle, and people will get upset. But if you spit on somebody, I don't know, it's like a riot will break out. And they spit on Jesus, you know, the Author of Life, the one who gave them their life. It's being spat on. And so we now see, I think, motives exposed. They just wanted an excuse to beat him up. And spit on him. They weren't interested in justice. Jesus knows what it means to be falsely accused. And you know what? It does not shake his confidence in who he is. He's confident in his relationship with God and his identity. And he's an inspiration to you and me that no matter what happens to us in this life, in this world, we do not have to be shaken as to our identity, as belonging to Jesus, one of his family, and that he truly loves us. And then finally we go on to the third scene. We've we've gone away from the courtyard and from Peter warming himself by the fire. And we come back now. He's in the courtyard in verse 66. And one of the servants is there. She sees him, looks closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said. He denies it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. He went out into the entryway. The servant girl sees him there, says again, so standing around this fellow is one of them. Again, he denies it. A little while later, now it's more people, those standing near, say to him, surely you are one of them for you are a Galilean. We know from one of the other Gospels that the accent of the Galileans was what So gave him away from a particular part of Israel. And then he begins to call down curses. He swears to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. And then the cock crows for the second time. Peter remembers the word Jesus said. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. He breaks down. Breaks down and he weeps. Jesus has already been abandoned by his friends and now he is is denied any sense of loyalty from his followers here. Excuse me. You know, mums, you want your kids' friends to be there for them. You don't want your kids to be alone, do you? You want our kids to have their friends around them to back them up when they're being bullied or when they're being attacked or whatever bad that's happening to them. I wonder how Mary felt. Knowing this was going on This trial is a little bit different. I'm going to ask you a quick to, to think about this for a second What do you see that's similar between the trials of Peter and Jesus and what's different? Barry? Yeah, that's right. In fact, the statements are fact. That's right. What was being said about Peter was all true quite Peter's immediately defensive, and Jesus is not. So we've got silence and we've got defensiveness. It's not it's denying. He's denying it, Jesus is not. Yeah,
0: that's
1: said, same, thing. same thing, yeah? A trial and trial. One's a formal trial, even if illegal, but still formal, and the other is an informal trial. Okay, a bit of a contrast there. Okay, what else? Contrasts, parallels, similarities, differences? What do you think we're meant to see? Because they're not. it's not an accident, is it, that we've got them right next to each other like this? Recorded for us anything else It's a good point there was an expectation of some kind, but maybe not as detailed right so Jesus probably had a pretty Detailed idea about what was going to happen whereas Peter was warned he would deny Jesus But he wouldn't have known the circumstances and so there's a difference there's a bit of a parallel and a difference. Yeah, okay good. Yeah Jesus, Jesus did not rise to the accusations, but Peter did. That's right, Akin. But Peter's um, the against were accusations of association. You are with yeah. yeah, and and for Jesus, he of Yeah, for Jesus it was much more focused on him, his teaching, what he had done, and who he was. Whereas for Peter, it's just, well, you were with the guy, right? Yeah, uh, Becky.
0: Was what was meant to be perhaps he was better prepared hmm. to be able to manage how he responded. Certainly, obviously, whereas Peter, what was the end goal there
1: for yeah. his uh, trial Yeah, yeah, so Jesus knew he was better prepared. And I would add, you just made me think about something actually, Becky, because I think, um, in the garden, in the prayer time, Stephan talked about. Jesus is praying for several hours. We don't know how long, but several hours to prepare himself. What's Peter doing in the garden? He's asleep. asleep. And Jesus has warned him. Mm -hmm. So why isn't he preparing himself? Even if he doesn't know the detail. Mm -hmm. But he fails to prepare in prayer. So there's a contrast perhaps there that's revealed. Mm -hmm. Mm, Bill? I
0: think Peter's scared.
1: Peter's scared. Jesus is is not scared. I expect Jesus felt fear because of the physical thing coming, but not... but accepted at that, that yeah. yeah. He doesn't it down to he it. Also, at the back. Jesus was accused by the high priest of Israel and by a certain woman who nobody in that in that culture and nobody accuses Peter, whereas Jesus gets the treatment of the highest and of, of the land. Absolutely, yeah, Leon. Jesus was very consistent
0: again in the
1: back. Peter, you could
0: see this as an opportunity to make good on this abandoned. Kind of come back and be you know, but then he kind of runs away. Right,
1: the running event. What a really interesting point! I hadn't thought about that, but it, in a way, it's Peter's opportunity to say, "Oh, I messed up in the garden. I ran away. Now I'm going to stand up." But he doesn't. Yeah. So, um, so Jesus knows the full meaning of the word. Peter's been taught about that, but he
0: hasn't. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's still he,
1: doesn't know. he doesn't
0: know. True, Dan? So, as I said, Sarah, I, I really wonder if Peter actually said that Jesus was going to react differently. Mm. Um,
1: and perhaps be this, he's leader of the people, take a that back, take a. You know, well, actually, he well, not what Jesus was about, and Peter didn't know how to react. Yeah, maybe Peter was thinking, ah, right, Jesus is going to tell that high priest what for, and he's going to sort them out, and uh, he's going to come walk he's out, out of there he's like, use
0: power, he's like, right. He
1: didn't, didn't he? He didn't know how to respond. Uh, Akin, last one, Almost, Peter regrets that. It's interesting, Peter is being asked to identify. And that is what he's refusing to do. You know, it makes me think of myself on a personal basis. He's been asked for different things at a difficult time. It's going to be challenging now to call himself a disciple and, uh, and, and the consequences of life's appear, And he wasn't prepared to do exactly the opposite of what Jesus actually was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Really interesting contrast. Um, this is fascinating. I think we've just generated. Enough insight to write a book uh, about this whole passage. Uh, some things I saw earlier, something I prepared earlier to quote Luke Peter. Um, so, Jesus knew that he was fulfilling prophecy from ancient times. Peter was fulfilling prophecy made by Jesus. They were both fulfilling prophecy in a way, different outcomes. Uh, Jesus endures an all night interrogation. Uh, Peter capitulates within an hour where the two cock crows would have been an hour apart. So somewhere within about an hour. Jesus retains his convictions in front of the most intimidating people in the country. Peter loses his convictions in front of a nobody. Mm-hmm. Jesus does not defend himself from false accusation. Peter does not admit to accurate accusation. Yeah. Barry pointed out. Jesus confirms his identity and Peter effectively denies his identity as an apostle, follower of Jesus. And there's a lot more we all talked about here and, and uh and explored. I just I'm
0: just, just reading those there pop in my head. So yeah. one who's spurred filled and one who
1: has no spirit mm-hmm. See, you've now messed up my final point. <laughs> 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 oh no. You're too quick for me. <laughs> No, no, that's totally fine, but you're quite right. And we're going to come to that point at the very end here because I think that is the critical distinction. That is the critical distinction and is the thing that we need to take to heart and and reflect on. I think that's a great, great point. So let me, I'm going to wrap up here anyway. Um, The, Peter knows what it means to let your best friend down. And I think that's something for us to be grateful for, that we know that even though he knew that, that wasn't the end of the story, which you're alluding to here. Peter was weak like you and me. We would I do not think we would have done any better in, if we were in Peter's shoes. But there's still hope. It's not recorded in Mark's Gospel, but it is in Luke, that when Jesus prophesied that Peter would deny him, he also said, I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when you have returned, strengthen your brothers. Jesus had hope for Peter, even though Peter didn't know it at this point. I was talking to my father uh, last week, Because my father's doing a Lent group at the moment, and they're going through some of the same texts as it happens. And we were talking about Peter and this situation. As we discussed it, what came to mind for all of us is what you just talked about, which is that the contrast between Peter here and Peter in the book of Acts. Now, what's the difference? It is the Spirit in the end, isn't it? Really? He takes the lead in chapter 1. He takes the lead in chapter 2 in preaching the first, what you could call, Christian sermon. He takes the lead in dealing with the accusations of the high priests and the other religious authorities in Acts chapter 4 and 5. He endures persecution (laughs) for the sake of Christ, which he avoids here. He takes it all. The verbal accusations, the physical beatings, and he stands up for what he believes and who he really is as a follower of Jesus. Because then he has the Spirit. The Spirit which couldn't be given until Jesus had died and resurrected and to wait for the resurrection. And we're on the road to the resurrection as we go towards the the memorializing or remembering Easter. I think that's an encouragement, isn't it? Because if we have the spirit, we can come back from times of failure. We can can become revitalized in our faith no matter where we've been. Perhaps that's part of the message of Easter. Part of the message of Easter is God's not finished with us yet. There's still hope. Anyone still breathing, but still hope for your faith to be strong and to grow and become more like the inspiring Jesus we see in, in these scenes through his trial. What an amazing Jesus we follow. We're going to take bread and wine to commemorate and remember what Jesus has done for us. Sarah's going to come and pray for us now. And So as we reflect and as we pray, let's remember the inspiring Jesus, his peace, his serenity, His confidence, his willingness to allow God's will to be done. Let's remember that even though sometimes we're more like Peter than Jesus, there's still hope. And there always is. And this bread and wine remind us of what Jesus is about. So Sarah, would you like to come up?